Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And as we take a look at the life of Joseph, I pray, God, that it would trigger for us a remembrance of your faithfulness, that we would glean from his life a way in which to live our own. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless all who are present and encourage them. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. And we just pray that you'd be high and lifted up, that all men would be drawn unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got to tell you, uh, yesterday I got a really cool Valentine's gift. I came home after the council meeting, and um, my wife bought me a Great Dane puppy. Yeah, eight weeks old, and the thing is like this. And the father of this dog weighs 185 pounds. Oh, Florence, hey. Let, come on, Julie, come up. Everybody, we got to stop for a second. Come on up. We, we have royalty in the house. I totally forgot. Come on, Julie, you too. Come on. You guys remember Pastor Dongo? This is his wife. Hello, my dear. Good to see you. We are so blessed to have her with us. I totally forgot because I'm stupid sometimes. Yeah, I know, I know. Do we have the handheld? Oh, here it is. Julie, I want you to tell everybody about Bayamba. I want you to tell them what's going on and why she's here. And then if you want to say anything, feel free. Amen? Okay. Did I put you on the spot? That's okay. It's okay. We're glad to be here tonight. Tonight we just wanted to come and worship with you guys. Um, Pastor Dongo has come here quite a few times and shared um, his passion for the orphans in Uganda. And um, many, we've got quite a few sponsors through this church, which is such a blessing. And so today, um, or this uh, season, these last two months, Florence has been here. She's been in Texas and now in California and then we're going on to New York soon. Wow. Um, but just to, she had on her heart, she came alone. We were trying to get her daughter worship to come with her to share and say thank you, and she didn't get a visa. So I said to Florence, you know, you don't have to come. It's a long way to come alone. And she said, no, I really feel compelled. Like the Lord just wants me to thank people for standing with her during her husband's death. And um, that happened a year and a half ago, and the ministry's still going strong, and her kids have stepped up, and she's stepped up. Um, well, always was working. Amen. I mean, she was always up. Um, but anyways, everyone's kind of stepped together to really um, make the ministry flow and keep going strong. And we have 1,500 kids in Uganda from ages three years old to launching to university that are sponsored. So it's going really well, and she just really felt compelled to come and say thank you to the people that... How blessed her, and so we're glad. I I want to jump in and say something about you, Florence. So a year and a half ago, Pastor Dongo went to be with the Lord, and that left Florence and her children with this massive ministry, a church, unbelievable responsibility. And um, when you're thrust into something like that, and you've trusted in your husband to oversee that, and then all of that falls on you and the children... One of the things that blesses me so deeply about Florence is she she receives counsel as to how to approach this. She's a patient and wise woman, and to see that it's been seamless in the transition with, with Bayamba and to see what God has done uh, just speaks volumes. And tonight, and this is so fitting, because tonight as we, we speak about Joseph, I'm thinking of, of Dongo, Bethwell. And I, um, Joseph had a vision, and we're going to see this, to to look back on God's faithful hand. And a lot of you don't know the story, but Florence and her husband started out as just farmers, Um, just a small plot of land, just struggling to make ends meet. They had their own kids, but started to take in orphans. And really, not two nickels to rub together. And for years, it was just like that, and and probably wondering about the faithfulness of the Lord. And I remember your husband missing fingers because during the revolution, he had been shot, and his fingers were shot off. Is that right? Here, take take the. You can just say yes every now and then if you'd like. <laughs> She's also very humble and quiet. <laughs> but his fingers were shot off, right? Yes, they were shot when we uh, were eight months in marriage. Eight months in marriage, and we were expecting our firstborn girl called Victory. She also went to be with the Lord, but she was a powerful evangelist. Her life was sharing Christ to everyone. Now, how many children have you given birth to and how many have you adopted? Uh, homegrown and grafted is what we call it. <laughs> yeah, it's always hard to speak this in Uganda, but I have five biological Five biological kids. The Lord has blessed me with many, like 
uh, we talk now, maybe a twenty plus. We have uh, our girls gotten married. They are in a good condition. I'm expecting two grandkids. Then if I add, there will be like a 15 grandkids. So I always say I'm blessed among all women in the Amen. whole world. Amen. <laughs> and I came to really appreciate you, brethren, for standing with us as Dongo family, even we are ministry. Thank you for loving Pastor Dongo because you, we were there for him. Thank you, Pastor Rob. It's like uh, his way to heaven was really successful <laughs> because I was there when he was uh, meeting, starting his journey to meet Christ Jesus. So I was there to encourage him to focus on Christ, the one we have served from day one. Mm. So I'm really grateful. Thank you for supporting him, and thank you for your unending love we really appreciate you. I came also to say the ministry is going on well. Uh, the kids whom the Lord gave us, they love Christ because we brought them, showing them Christ, showing them the ministry. We, we had a humble beginning. Like in Uganda, when you have one room, you can call it a house. <laughs> <laughs> so long as you enter and your kids can have a shelter, so we had two rooms with more than 10 kids, but we were happy. Amen. The joy of the Lord was within us. We didn't look to be poor. We knew that the God we believed in, he owns the whole world. Amen. So I'm here very happy that when he passed on, again, we gained strength, even love towards our God to serve him. We did not uh, spend many, many months mourning, but we know that for sure there's a time for everything. So yeah. the time for mourning was over. Now we have strength. We serve the living God. Last year, we had 818 kids in our, we call it nursery and primary, and 530 at God Cares High School. So we bless the Lord that he has done us good. Many kids are graduating, and they are coming back to help us with the schools and also the church. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for oh, allowing me stand and share your heartbeat. God bless you so very much. Thank you, dear. Yeah, yeah. Buyamba. Buyamba means Buyamba. It is Buyamba. Buyamba means help. And if you help, help. Yeah, Uyamba, which means many times I say Uyamba, the, the singers know this, Uyamba, Uyamba, which means help, helps. Help, helps. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, Lugandan? So your help has really helped us to go forward and to move forward. Amen. Wonderful. Well, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for Florence, and thank you, God, that she's with us, and really, truly to have royalty in our presence. We love this woman. We love the ministry you've entrusted to her care. We pray comfort and strength for her and her family and for the ministry. And so, Lord, may this time in America be fruitful, that hearts would be opened. And, Lord, I pray that blessing would flow upon this ministry. So, Lord, protect her in her travels, care for her family in her absence, and abundantly bless her, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, whatever's in the box, we'll double it, and then it's it's yours, okay? Thank Amen. You. That's your deal, and then we'll match it. So if you're cheap, she gets nothing, so all right. <laughs> Amen. All right, we're going to take a look uh, at Hebrews chapter 11. So uh, let's open up there, and we're going to begin with the verses we begin with each week. <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is for you, not against you. And uh, he rewards faithfulness and, and trusting in him. And this is a whole picture of faith. We've gone through the story 
Uh, I'm not going to do it again. You understand the idea of a testimony for lives that will follow. We're reading in the book of Hebrews lives that had reflected faithfulness, so it allows us that we can't see the future, but we can see the past that testifies of a God who's faithful for our future. And these are a list of men and women who have testified to God's faithfulness. We glean from them strength to go forward in the hands of a God that we can trust. And so that's the picture here. Now drop down to verse 22, verse 22. This is the next person we're going to be studying. It says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. You think, oh, big deal. What's that have to do with faith? Anyone agree with me on that? It's kind of odd, yes? I know it's Wednesday. I need some feedback here. Yes? Yes. Good. Now we've established a precedent. Turn with me. And let's take a look at this Joseph, Genesis 49, Genesis 49. We're going to take a look at Joseph's dad. His name's Jacob. Joseph's dad's name's Jacob. And we're going to see what happens to Jacob. It's interesting because what happens to him actually happens, uh, we're, we're going to have this in common. It's, it's very interesting. Um, we, we have this in common. And so you're going to be able to connect with Jacob Look at verse 33. When Jacob had finished finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet, uh, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last. Yeah, he died. That's what we have in common. I just thought I'd set it up for you. And he was gathered to his people. Now go over to chapter 50. Chapter 50. We're going to take a look at his son. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying. And by the way, the word dying in in chapter 49 and here in chapter 50 are two different words. One is he's dying a corpse, death, life has left his body. The other is I am finishing my course. And he's looking at a, a, um, a path that he's traveled. It's not speaking of the decay of his body. It's speaking of I've ended my course has nothing to do with the decay of the body or the death of the body, like it says with Jacob. But with Joseph, it's speaking of the end of his course, which is fascinating. I am dying, but God will surely uh, visit you. And look at the word, but God, those two together, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He was in Egypt, by the way. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Interesting. Now turn, almost finished, turn with me to Acts 7. We're going to go to verse 9 of Acts chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Right? Yeah. New Testament. Acts 7. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the son, the father of Shechem. Um, and then verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And what happens after that is all the Israelites are put into enslavement. And so this thriving culture then collapses into slavery. And then we know what happens with Moses. He comes in and delivers the, the Israelites. And the final plague, the firstborn dies. And Egypt has this problem. All of Pharaoh's army is destroyed in what we would call the Red Sea. And it's a fascinating history. So you, you look at it, and I'm a history major, and you look at it and you say, well, if, if you look at Ramses and you see the time of Ramses, 
there, there is no evidence whatsoever for an exodus of the Jews in the time of Ramses. It just doesn't add up in Egyptology and history. But the problem is, based on, on what we consider the, the current idea of history, especially e- Egyptian history, you have to move that 200 years back. 200 years back takes you to the middle period. And in the middle period, everything pertaining to this exodus, everything pertaining to Joseph, everything pertaining to all this falls in line. But modern scholars today have dismissed it, and as a result of pushing it forward 200 years, all the rest of history dismisses biblical history. You move it back 200 years, and everything about biblical history coincides, uh, everything with history coincides with the biblical mindset, everything. And so you go, well, that's easy to do, to shift history by 200 years. So what we're gonna do before I get into the study tonight I want to give you an idea of how significant Joseph is into history and how significant Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 is, this idea of his bones. For us, it's easy just to read that verse and dismiss it as I did earlier. It just seems almost, you know, inconsequential, yet it is such a significant portion of history that when you see this, it's going to take 15 minutes. You got to put on your thinking caps. Stay with me on this. Do not fall asleep. I'm going to walk up and down the aisles. If I see anyone nodding off, I will slap. No, I won't. But, but I want you to watch this because if this is accepted, and this is a two-hour film I'm going to show you a 15-minute segment of. The two-hour film um, is phenomenal. It's narrated by uh, a member of our congregation, Kevin Sorbo. He's the guy who played Hercules, and he was in God is Not Dead. He, he's here on Sundays, he and his wife, Sam. He narrates this, and it is a fascinating study of what many scholars are now embracing of this move of history uh, for the Exodus, moving it into the middle period of Egyptian history, which would, would change all of history and bring the Bible totally in line with everything historical. And so, are we ready, Sam? You got it, buddy? Genesis tells us that the first descendant... Let's lower the lights, here we go. ...to arrive in Egypt was his great-grandson, Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph's brothers had sold him as a slave to a caravan of traders who brought him down to Egypt. Then, in an amazing turn of events, he rises to become the highest official in Egypt. He saves the country from a terrible famine, enables his father Jacob and his entire family to settle in the best part of the land, a place called Goshen. This is a Jewish rabbi who is narrating the portion of Scripture was to see if any specific evidence had been uncovered of the Semitic family group arriving in Egypt, as told in the Bible. So far, I had none. So far, not so. We only know we have uh, some evidence of Shepherdus uh, So far, not so. I was stuck, but that was soon to change, when suddenly something was telling me to go to my library and search out a book given to me a year earlier that I had never read. What startled me was that this author had answers to the very doubts that Vita had raised in me. He had spent his whole life exploring the Middle East a man familiar with the mysterious inscriptions and hieroglyphs of the pharaohs and what they might reveal about the biblical stories. David Rowe, author, historian, and Egyptologist, is an agnostic, someone who remains unconvinced of the existence of God. Yet, he clearly sees archaeological evidence of the biblical Joseph, Jacob, and the early Hebrews in the Nile Delta region of Egypt. Roll believes that many Egyptologists have missed evidence for the Exodus because they have been looking for it in the wrong time period. While most scholars think that the events of the Exodus happened in the New Kingdom, David Roll's view would put the Exodus in an entirely different period, the earlier Middle Kingdom, where he claims evidence for the Exodus can be seen. I wanted him to explain why he had come to such a different conclusion than Manfred Bitek about Joseph and the early Israelites. Tell me, who is Manfred Bitek? Manfred Bitek is probably one of the greatest archaeologists alive today. 
and he's dug at one of the most important sites in the Eastern Delta, a city called Avaris, which is in the land of Goshen, which the Bible calls it. And I believe this is the place where Joseph and his brethren lived. Well, I went to see Manfred Bittek. Right. And that's not what he said. He said there's no evidence of this at the time of Ramesses. Exactly right. Most scholars will say if you look at the city of Ramesses, there are no Asiatics there. There are no Western Asiatics living at that particular city. But dig down a bit, a little bit deeper, and you do find a city full of Asiatics. Yeah, but the Bible says it happened at the time of Ramesses. Mm -hmm. What are you saying? I'm saying that this particular mention of the city of Ramses, the building of Ramses, is what we call an anachronism. It's something that's been added into the text later by an editor. Mm -hmm. So what the editor is basically saying is, this is the place where the Israelites built the store city, and we know it today as Ramesses. Well, in the ancient times, it was called Avaris. Okay, so, uh, so the people know the area, the region, the people of the Bible would have known where Ramesses was and where, therefore, their ancestors actually built the city. I also found that the Bible, in the book of Genesis, uses the word Ramesses hundreds of years before Pharaoh Ramesses or his city existed to describe the land where Joseph's family settled. So if the name Ramesses in Genesis does not refer to the time of Pharaoh Ramesses II, then why should the mention of Ramesses in the book of Exodus be any different? Now this Avaris is the city which lies under the biblical Ramesses, Ramesses of the New Kingdom, Avaris of the Middle Kingdom, the 13th Dynasty. It lies underneath the city that's mentioned in the Bible. So when Betak digs up a huge population of Semitic-speaking peoples with Semitic culture, living in the city of Avaris for several hundred years, and then, at the end of the period, these Semites all leave, depart with their belongings and abandon the city, whatever Manfred says, that to me sounds awfully like the Israelites. Well, what he told me was that there was no connection. Well, look at the evidence that you've got here. Right at the beginning, at the heart of this community, at the end of the 12th dynasty, we see a Syrian house appear. The Austrians call them Mittelsal houses. This type of house is found in North Syria, the area where Abraham came from. It's exactly the same style of house you'd expect Jacob to build for himself in Egypt. And we know that the Israelites sought their brides from Haran in that region. They all went back to get their brides from there. So the culture that turns up in Egypt at the end of the 12th dynasty seems to have come from North Syria originally. So what is the connection with Joseph out of ours? Well, after this house of Jacob, if we can call it that, is built, eventually it's, it's flattened. And on top of it, an Egyptian palace is constructed, Egyptian architecture this time. However, the occupant was not Egyptian. The palace had courtyards, colonnades, audience chambers. There was even a robing room. It obviously belonged to some high official of state who was very, very important to that state. Because when somebody gets a palace like this given to them, it means they're being honored for what they've done for the state. Now in the garden behind the palace, the archaeologists found 12 main graves with memorial chapels on top of them. You have 12 we graves? We have 12 graves. And why would that be significant? Well, think about it. How many sons did Jacob have? Yeah, How many tribes were there? Twelve tribes. Exactly. And what's also amazing is the palace had a facade, a portico with twelve pillars. Mm -hmm. So you've got twelve sons, twelve tribes, twelve pillars, and twelve tombs. Interesting. Yeah. Is that all coincidence? Now one of these twelve graves was very special because it was a pyramid tomb. This in itself is extraordinary because only pharaohs and queens had pyramid tombs at this time. Yet the person buried in this tomb was not a king. Even so, he was honored with a king's burial. And inside the chapel of the tomb was a statue. What we know from the statue is that this man had red hair. He had pale yellow skin, which is how Egyptians depict northerners. He had a throw stick across his shoulder, a unique symbol of office made for this Asiatic official living in the land of Goshen. And on the back of his shoulder, we see the faintest remains of paint, colored stripes from a multicolored coat. And that matches exactly with the story of Joseph in the Bible. The multicolored coat is a gift which shows that he was the favorite of the father. And it almost becomes his insignia, this coat. It's the thing we remember about him most of all. Do you know of any other statues of a Semite of this kind in Egypt? There is nothing else like this in the whole of Egyptian history, really? nothing at all.
David Rowe is not the only one to see a connection with Joseph at Avaris. Mahoney went to see Professor Charles Ayling, an Egyptologist who has also investigated the events of the Exodus and its connection to Egypt. Would it be unusual for a tomb to have a statue? No. It's unusual to have one this large. This would be uh, probably twice uh, the size of a normal human being. What does that tell you when the, when the statue's larger? That it's a very important person. Now, of course, this is not a pharaoh's uh, tomb or palace, but the man who lived there, you can identify his nationality by looking at the fragments of the statue. Uh, three things. The hairstyle he has, which we often call the mushroom hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, the weapon he carries over his shoulder called a throw stick, which we would associate with like an Australian boomerang. And then the coloration of the skin. The skin is yellow. All those things indicate that this would have been a Syro-Palestinian. Dr. Ailing, do you think this is Joseph? Either it is Joseph or it's somebody that has a career remarkably the same as Joseph did. It's just a, an incredible thing to, to find this at this uh, time period. Exodus was a story about the birth of a nation. It was time for Mahoney to go to Israel. This gave him the unique opportunity to meet with Israel's president, Shimon Peres, and hear his perspective about the character of Joseph and his rise from slavery to governing Pharaoh's court. If you look at the, the way the story is written, God chose him for a mission. I read somewhere that Tolstoy said that this is the greatest story ever published in human literature. The story of Joseph and his brother and his going to Egypt. Joseph was the first Jewish advisor on earth. And he advised the most powerful empire in the vicinity. He conquered the heart of everybody he saw, men and women. With God's help, Joseph was able to save Egypt by warning of a coming calamity. Seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of terrible famine. Pharaoh is so impressed that he puts Joseph in charge of preparing for the famine and makes him second in command over the entire country. He managed to achieve this by foretelling or explaining the dreams of Pharaoh about cattle coming out of the, the water of the Nile. As first of all, seven fat cows, and then seven lean cows come out and devour the fat cows. It's an extraordinary story. But the clue here is that these cows are coming out of the Nile. It's the Nile itself which is the cause of both the plenty and the famine. If David's interpretation is right, then the regulation of the Nile may have been key in planning for the coming famine. There's a canal or a waterway that connects the Nile to the Fayum Basin, which is a large lake area, which has the name Bar Yosef, which means the waterway of Joseph. And this goes back thousands of years, as far as we can tell. Why do you think that that canal has that name? Because I think he made it. I think it was under his instructions as vizier of Egypt that that canal was cut. And it was cut to divert half the water from the Nile into the Fayum Basin. You then get back to the situation where the water levels are just right for growing crops. And you see it today. It's still in use today. And the construction of this water diversion system is dated to the same period as the early settlement at Avaris. Joseph gathers up all the grain during the seven years of plenty in Egypt. He gathered as much as the sand of the sea. And then the famine comes to the entire region. And only Egypt has bread. So everyone comes to Joseph for what they need for survival. When their money runs out, they sold their animals. When that ran out, they sold their land, and eventually they sold themselves. So Pharaoh, by the end of the seven years, owns everything in Egypt. Mahoney wanted to know if there ever was a time in this era when a dramatic shift of wealth and power occurred between the people of Egypt and the Pharaoh. 
he went to Pennsylvania to see an archaeologist who spent many years studying the Exodus and the conquest. His name is Dr. Bryant Wood. When we look at Egyptian history, we find something very significant happened at this exact time. Egypt was divided up into areas called gnomes, kind of like districts all over the country. And the leaders of these gnomes had tremendous wealth and tremendous power. We get to a point in Egyptian history when suddenly that all changes and all the wealth is concentrated with the pharaoh. What on earth happened here? If you read the Egyptian history books, there is no explanation for it. They don't know what happened, how it happened. I mean, this was a tremendous social economic change. Well, what do you think happened? Well, we have the answer in the Bible, uh, and it's Joseph's famine policy, and he brings the wealth into Pharaoh, and it fits exactly with Egyptian history. David believes these events occurred during the reigns of two important Middle Kingdom pharaohs. This key time is during the co-regency between Sennacherib III and his son Amenemhat III. I believe this is the time of the famine and that Amenemhat was Joseph's pharaoh. Amenemhat is depicted with worry lines. His ears are turned out so that he can listen to the concerns of the people. He's not depicted in the usual bland way that you see in all the other statues of past and future pharaohs. And I think this is an indication that in his time, Egypt was experiencing serious problems. And guess what? He builds his pyramid right next to Bach Yosef, the waterway of Joseph. The amount of archaeological evidence matching the first step of arrival in the biblical sequence seemed overwhelming to Mahoney. The Syrian-styled house that appeared in the delta along with a palace fit for royalty, whose occupant was a high Semitic official from the Canaan area who wore a multi-colored coat. The waterway of Joseph, contemporary with the rise of Avaris. The end of influence and wealth for the regional governors as the power of Pharaoh reached new heights. Yet these events converged at a time when the statues of the pharaohs were depicted in a unique careworn way, the telltale signs of a kingdom in distress. Well, why is it that we've never heard of these finds? Because in the scheme that's used by scholars to date all these events, they're way too early. They're much too early to be Israelites. I'm basically saying, well, why not call the spade a spade? At the pyramid tomb of Avaris, excavations revealed one other important piece of evidence. The crucial clue for me, which says to me that this man with the multicolored coat is Joseph, is found in the story of Exodus. When Joseph is on his deathbed, he tells his brethren that when they leave, they must take his body with them to the promised land. What matches the story even more incredibly? is that pyramid tomb was empty when the archaeologists found it. There was nothing in it at all, apart from a few fragments of this smashed statue. There were no bones, there were no mummy beads, no coffin wood, nothing. It was cleaned out. So it was a grave robber. Not a grave robber. What grave robber is going to take the bones? Bones are intrinsically of no value whatsoever. Okay. Nobody takes the bones. Only people who are treating the body with reverence take the bones. The body was taken out, and all the grave goods were taken out. I think this is the tomb of Joseph, the pyramid tomb of Joseph, honored by Pharaoh with a colossal statue, that when Moses decided to take the people out of Egypt, he made sure he fulfilled that promise of Joseph to take the body out of the tomb and take it to Shechem and bury him in the Promised Land. This location, photographed in the 1800s, is where many believe Joseph's bones were finally laid to rest in the ancient town of Shechem in Canaan. The city is known today as Nablus on the West Bank, where this tomb has been at the center of much political and religious tension. The Exodus is surrounded by controversy on many levels. Even David Rolls suggesting specific evidence of Joseph and the early Israelites' arrival in Egypt is archaeologically controversial. 
because he looks earlier in time than what is conventionally accepted. But at this stage, I didn't care. I was determined to stick with the guidelines of the investigation, looking for a pattern of evidence, wherever it might exist. Let's stop there. You can, you can pause it. Let's turn on the lights. Kind of gives a whole new meaning to Hebrews 11.22, yeah? You're, you're looking at something that could radically transform our view of history today if they would but follow the evidence. And what's fascinating is the, is the movie goes on to depict that there's a timeline set by the building of Solomon's temple. And if you take that timeline back that's stated in Scripture, it brings you right to that place that we're studying now. And, and that would shift all of history. And if it did, and you, you saw it as the middle kingdom, all of a sudden, everything in scripture aligns with history. And it's one of the most fascinating insights, but it's something that people just want to avoid. And, and I would encourage you uh, to, to look into, it's called Patterns of Evidence. And um, it's about two hours long. It's, a, it's an amazing movie. You'll, you'll be stunned by it. And um, I would encourage you to take a look at it. Now, that being said, what's the significance in regards to faith as to what we're studying tonight? Because again, the passage says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And so we know that he gave these instructions, but let's look at the life of Joseph so that we can comprehend what he's declaring in regards to faith. So Joseph is... The youngest child, now of course Benjamin would come along and be the youngest, but he would be the last surviving, although some believe that Levi lived a little bit longer possibly than Joseph did, but we don't have evidence of that. But Joseph being the second youngest, Benjamin being the youngest, was the daughter of, of Jacob and Rachel. And um, his father loved him because he was a child born in his old age. And he gave him, as we saw, that coat of many colors. And some people believe it to be the coat of big sleeves or the coat of many colors. And the idea, it's a coat that you talk about blue collar and white collar jobs. He would be management and the sons would be the laborers. And, and Joseph in his young years, arrogant, gets a dream from God about sheaves bowing down to him, tells his brothers, his brothers get irritated, like, who is this upstart? They get so frustrated with him that as we take a look in Genesis, we won't do it now, but, but in Genesis um, 37, uh, his brothers try to kill him. Some of them argue for his life, so they put him in a cistern, and they wait for a traveling band to come by, and they sell him into slavery. He ends up in slavery in Egypt and is sold to um, a general by the name of Potiphar. And he rises with God's blessing over Potiphar's household, First, he's sold into slavery. Then he rises in favor in Potiphar's household because everything he touches is blessed. Then Potiphar's wife kind of thinks him to be a hottie and makes a move on him. And Joseph says, I'm entrusted to care for everything in your husband's house, and, and I have no business with you in my life. And he denies her advances. She uh, claims that he made an advance. Potiphar puts him in jail. He spends 10 years languishing in prison. And while he's in prison, two men from Pharaoh's um, staff are put into prison, uh, the, the baker and the cupbearer. The baker bakes the food. The cupbearer is the one who tests to see if it's poisoned and tests the food as well. These two men are put into prison. While they're in prison, God gives uh, a vision to Joseph, and he tells one of them, you're going to die. <laughs> Thanks. And the other, he says, you're going to be delivered, but remember me when you're in Pharaoh's household. Two more years continue in Joseph's life while he's waiting for this man to say something because it happened exactly as Joseph had pointed out. And then Pharaoh has a dream that shocks him. And it's, I think the cupbearer is the one who survives. The cupbearer says to the Pharaoh, listen, I know a guy who interprets dreams. I, I just remember, it takes him two years to remember. And he calls on him. He comes in, interprets the dream. Pharaoh's moved by it and brings him in. Well, again, God not only blessed him in Potiphar's house, but he blessed him in the prison and put him in favor with all the guards in the prison. Now he comes into Pharaoh's household and God blesses him abundantly in Pharaoh's household. And then he becomes, as, as, as Acts chapter 7 says, he's overseeing everything for Pharaoh. 
And we heard about the dream with the seven fat cows, the seven skinny cows, the seven skinny cows consume the seven fat cows. It's this idea of seven years of, of plenty and then seven years of famine. So they store up a massive amount of grain uh, and they put these storehouses together. And in the movie, you'll see these storehouses and what, what occurred. And then all of a sudden, the wealth, as you saw with the, the decline of these regional folks and then the increase of one pharaoh, all happened because it's centralized because they contain the wealth. And while this happens, he is reunited with his brothers because they have to come because all the world is under drought. They have to come to find food and they're selling and he realizes who they are. Now, Joseph is dressed as an Egyptian, so they don't recognize him. Plus, he's learned the Egyptian language. So he's got the makeup, he's got the hairdo, he's got the garb. Uh, Maybe his hair gives him away, but probably the headdress and everything else he's wearing. None of his brothers realize that it's him. They knew him when he was 17. And he would live to be 110 years old. So for 73 years, he, he will be in Egypt for 73 years. <clears throat> and while he's ruling in Egypt and his brothers come back, he tests them to see if they've repented. And, and there's a whole story in relation to that. And they, they totally reveal an, a brokenness and admitting to what they did. And he's reunited with them and he begins to weep. He tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, bring your family here. Jacob comes to Egypt um, all the kids come, and there's where you see the 12 tombs. You see this picture of the, of the 12 pillars in this palace. It's a Semitic palace, and uh, he's honored. And then this pyramid structure that you see honors him when he dies. But his testimony to those is, listen, <clears throat> we're supposed to be in Canaan. And when all this goes down, because the promise was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we would spend a portion of time here, but then we would be, be delivered and go back to where the promise was made in Bethel, uh, where, where God is going to bring deliverance. And this is where we're, we're going to see Christ come and where we're going to see the Lamb of God and this testimony that they declare as we've been studying the patriarchs. So he says, listen, when you go into that promised land, bring my bones with you. And so the bones are put in Shechem, as you can see, and it's a contested area by the Palestinian Authority. As, as um, uh, Americans with U.S. passports, it's very difficult for us to get in there. They don't advertise it. They hide it. It is a very unique place. And, and so uh, we say, well, when were those bones delivered? Let me just read to you. This is, this is, out, of, um, this is out of Exodus 13, which comes after Genesis, and this is Moses. Moses took the bones, uh, Exodus thirteen nineteen. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So Moses holds to the promise. As you can see, the tomb was empty, and grave robbers don't take bones. Yes? So they remove the bones according to Moses' decree. And if we struggle with that, Joshua again, who takes over for Moses, because Moses wasn't allowed down their promised land. We'll cover that as we get to those folks. The bones, uh, this is Joshua 24, last chapter, verse 32. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar, or Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Israel. And so now you see that what Joseph is declaring by faith, and, and this, this simple passage, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, when he had come to the end of the course of his life, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So now we read into it a little bit deeper. We have the background. And to read in and do it deeper is this. This is the application for us tonight. And we're going to be finished hopefully kind of early if you don't have a lot of questions. The application is simply this. Think about his life, betrayed by his brothers. How would you go on in life if, first of all, your brothers wanted to kill you and then sold you into slavery? Spends time in slavery, is blessed by Potiphar, and is lied about by Potiphar's wife. Puts him into prison for 12 years. Declares to two men and still languishes for an extra two years, comes into Pharaoh's household and is blessed, and then witnesses all of this in the course of his life. And you look at him, and I I just have to say for us tonight, I want you to go through the litany. And I, I, I I sat with a brother today who's going through a train wreck in his life. 
and struggling. And, and as I started to address it, I said, this train wreck has nothing to do with what you're facing as, in your life. This is you and the Lord. And you know all the answers, but you don't apply them. This is your problem. There's no surrender in your life. You don't trust God. You take matters into your own hands. And you're making a mess of it. These are all consequences. This isn't the issue. Everything you've laid is not the issue. The issue is you and the Lord. And every time I sit with you, you go through the litany of excuses as to why. Now that sounds like all of us. We all go through the litany of excuses. I want you to go through your life. What are all the reasons why you aren't completely sold out to the Lord? And we can go through our life and who do we blame? Who are the people that have hurt us? Who are the people who sold us into slavery? Who are the people who betrayed us? Who are the people who lied about us? Who are the people? Just go down the list. And if you look, if you look at Joseph, he has got a million excuses. And there isn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist that would look at him and say, this is a kid who's going to flourish at 17 years of age. This, this guy was born in the worst of circumstances and has every reason to be angry at the world. Yes? And so as we sit here with the myriad of our excuses, looking at Joseph's life, what does Joseph do in relation to everything that happens to him? Listen, I have never spent, that's not true. I've never spent more than a day in prison. I've never, I've never spent actually 24 hours in a prison before. Not even in a prison, I was in a jail. That was for real, actually. <laughs> but uh, you look at it. And, and to be there for no reason of anything you've done. How many of you have been fully betrayed by every member of your family and, and alienated from the father who loves you? How many of you have had dreams given to you by your parents that were crushed by your siblings? I mean, we can go through the list. And you want to give excuses as to why the world owes you something. But what does Joseph do through the course of his life? No seminary, no Christian radio, no churches, no Christian brothers or sisters to comfort him. And, and you want to talk about prisons. The equivalent of an Egyptian prison is like being in a Brazilian or Mexican prison. It's not America where you get to watch TV and you get three meals. This is awful. And here he is languishing in this prison. No fellowship, just him and the Lord. He gets to the end of his life, 73 years in a land that's not his own. And he comes to this place, and I want you to turn with me. And this is so powerful to me. Let me find it. Oh, here we go. Turn to Genesis 50. And then we're going to go to verse 19. Joseph, Joseph is speaking to the brethren, to his children. He says to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. He's saying this to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He blessed his brothers who had rebelled against him. You want to talk about mercy and forgiveness. No bitterness. And we've studied this. The one thing God doesn't, doesn't tolerate from his children is unforgiveness. You know what unforgiveness is? Blaming people for your situation in life. Everything that's happened to you is passed through the sovereign hand of God. And he works it together for good to make you who you are. And Joseph looked back at the expanse of his life, 73 years in Egypt, after the misery at 17 years of age, being put in a cistern, sold into slavery, and went through all that hell. And he looks back and he sees his people survive and he realizes, God, you do have a plan. And he doesn't want a temple built to his name. This is interesting about the body of Christ. We think the only way we'll ever have significance in our life is to make money or to have a memorial or to remember, be remembered as a great person. We don't lose ourselves in the plan of God and just humble ourselves 
What does he require to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? And so Joseph, he's given this pyramid. He says, this is irrelevant to me. I don't want a monument. I want to be right where God wants me. And where is that? He says, take me back to Canaan. Take me back to the place where the promise was made by the living God who has never left me in all my life. And that everything that's happened to me was his hand that he used it together for good to save many people. Now, from that perspective in the hall of faith, I want to say this tonight. Everything that's happened to you, everything that's happened to me, God works together for good. He's equipped us and uniquely enabled us to be able to minister. And the only thing that hinders that is your bitterness. Your lack of vision. So when the scripture says Jacob died, decay of his body, Joseph said, I've come to the end of the course that God had for my life. It's a totally different depiction. And the reason why Florence being here tonight is so blessing me is because a man who had vision more than anyone I've ever met in all my life was Bethuel Dongo. You look at this couple, abstract poverty from the Western standard, and there's 1,500 kids plus in this school over 20 adopted, transforming an entire culture and saving lives. Eight months married, two fingers shot off, losing their child. I can go on and on, and you can look and be bitter at God and blame all these circumstances. And you see Florence up here testifying, and, and she's, she's been a widow a very short time. And time for mourning is over because her vision... She saw that her husband's course was completed as she was by his bedside, but looking at a vision for what God has yet to do. If you want a pain-free life, it doesn't exist. Well, it does, and I shared this on Sunday. There is a pain-free life, but it's no utopia. It's a leper colony. Pain is a gift from God that nobody wants. And pain is this idea of a refiner's fire that... You turn up the heat till all the slag floats to the surface and you only turn the heat down when, you can, when the metallurgist can see his reflection in the metal. And God is looking to make you like him, a man acquainted with sorrow, but was faithful to his father's will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as it concludes by saying, now therefore do not be afraid, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's verse 21. You go to verse 24 and it says, and Joseph said to his brethren, I have finished my course, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. What he's saying is, I believe the promise. I was placed here to prepare you for this promise. My course is not complete. I don't want to stay here. Take my bones that in the resurrection, I know that I will see him face to face. I want to go back to the place of the promise. And he reiterates the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that coffin made it all the way to Shechem. And the children of Israel honored that because they honored the word of God that was first given to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and as well as Joseph. Moses had it. Joshua went into the promised land. It is one of the most fascinating stories in all of history, as Tolstoy pointed out. And then I would say this. For a testimony of God's faithfulness, they carried a coffin all the way to Shechem. You want to talk about the hall of faith and a testimony? They had a coffin. We have an empty tomb. We have every reason, as the apostle Paul said, if there be no resurrection, I'd be of all men most pitied because of the life I've chosen to live. No regrets, straightforward. The pain is God's purpose and the struggle is not unto bitterness and unforgiveness. It is unto development to make us understand and transform and to realize this is the course. Don't despise it, embrace it. No regret in looking back. He had no bitterness to his brothers. And looking back over his life, 
his testimony at the end was to remain true to God. My mom would be 87 years old today. I've been by the bedside of many people who've stepped into eternity. One of the most profound passings I've ever witnessed was my mother's. She placed blessings on each of the kids. She stayed alive through great pain to extend forgiveness and receive it. I remember walking into a room when we thought maybe the surgery would be successful. And anyone having a surgery in their 80s, it's troublesome to say the least. She had a small spot on her lung. They went to remove it. Medication, lungs collapsed. She died. But right after the surgery, she was recovering in her room and she was looking forlorn out the window. I walked into her room, not as her son, but as her minister. She looked over her shoulder and she saw me and she continued to look out the window and she said, Rob, have I made a mistake? having the surgery. And I wasn't going to go there. I just said, you know, Mom, the Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. There's no regrets. This is the economy of God's grace. If this surgery is successful, you'll have years to be with us. If it's not, you have time to prepare to say goodbye and have a noble passing and bless your children and your grandchildren. And as it got worse, and then she was on hospice, the Lord gave her that. It was one of the most profound passings I've ever witnessed. And she was looking back over her life at the faithfulness of God. This is a woman whose father had molested her, whose mother died when she was 17, who went to live with an aunt and, and her two children that didn't quite embrace her. At 17 years of age, sprinkling the ashes of my grandmother around the Lincoln Memorial and not having anybody in life that she could call family. Going through all kinds of trials and struggles, but imparting to her children faithfulness and a love for country and a love for God in a unique way, going through trials and making mistakes as we all do, but reconciling to the Lord and making the most of life. I think today's pretty special. I'll never forget the woman. And I think for all of us, <clears throat> when you finish your course, will you have any regrets? And is your life a testimony of faith? Because my mother's passing instilled in me a faithfulness of God. Everything works together for good, everything. And I think as we've been going through this hall of faith, what more do you need? What's it going to take? Enough with excuses. Joseph wanted his bones right at the place of the promise. It's a testimony of faith that what God said he will do. And sure enough, he did. And he always will. And I sit with people who know all this and never surrender. And they make a mess. And the amazing thing is, the minute you break and yield, he turns that mess into a magnificent tapestry. Why do we continue in such frustration when God is ready to do such amazing things? He did it with an 80-plus-year-old woman. He did it with Joseph, and he most certainly can do it with us. I think tonight has been a testimony of God to all of us, especially this film. I've been blessed by it. This obscure verse echoes in history to wake us up, to put the past behind us and the bitterness 
and realize this is the course that God has for us. It's good. Quit whining. Amen? 20 minutes after eight, that leaves us 10 minutes. If you want to go home, you can. If you have any questions, I'll answer them quickly. Uh, or any comments in addition to tonight? Or thoughts, anything? Yes? Oh, praise the Lord. She says she's been blessed. I'm glad. Amsterdam. That coincides with the plagues? Yeah, there's, there's unbelievable evidence if you just take, take some time to study it. Anyone else? Patterns of evidence, take a look at the movie. It's excellent. And if you have any questions tonight, I'd be happy to answer them for you or tell you I have no idea what the answer is. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for Florence. Lord, comfort her and bless her and renew her vision that together she shared with her husband, but now, Lord, she shares with you. I pray, Lord, that you'd order her steps and that she would rejoice in your faithfulness. And we're privileged to be a part of that great work in Uganda. Lord, I pray your provision for her and for the ministry and all that Julie does. And I pray, God, that that there would be provision in that ministry, especially with the banquet coming up. Lord, thank you for the hall of faith and this picture of Joseph, this obscure verse, but so deep in its meaning that is ministered to me. And I pray everyone else. You're, you're a wonderful God and you're so faithful. And thank you for the course that you've given us, even with the pain. It's a gift and we, we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.